We are going to look this morning um, at a wonderful, just marvelous passage uh, in the scriptures um, that I'm, I, I know I say this every time, but I, it's really quite um, marvelous that this series that I've been doing in Maryland that you get the, you get the, the leftovers or the, or the preview of, it depends on which week if I'm before or after. And um, it, it's, I really have liked to call this series, although it is ostensibly a series on the attributes of God, it's, it's really Matt Bulling's favorite passages of scripture. Um, and this is one of them. Um, there's a very much a marking point um, that I'll tell you about as we go through this passage for me, uh, about this passage um, that makes it incredibly, incredibly special uh, to me. But let me read it and pray, and then we'll, we'll open it up together. So this is, uh, I'm in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses uh, 31 to 39. The heading, appropriately, uh, I think in the ESV, says God's everlasting love. Let's hear God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when we experience um, frustration or hardship, um, pain, death of acquaintances or loved ones, even hardship in other people's lives. We are tempted uh, to read those things as though your love has departed, as though you stopped being gracious, as though you're still judging us. We read incorrectly. Convince us that's true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the, the overwhelming message of the scriptures is that God is gracious to sinners. From go, that's the overwhelming message of the scriptures. For us who live when we do in redemptive history, God is gracious to sinners like us because of Jesus. 
because of what Jesus came to do, living, dying, rising, ascending, and as we'll wonderfully meditate on for a brief moment in a little bit, um, praying for us, still working for us. Now, there are a lot of implications of God being gracious to sinners. Um, today, uh, we're going to deal with, the, with one of those implications, which is that here's the implication. God isn't judging you anymore. God isn't judging you anymore. He's done with judging you. It's over. What that means is that as God's amazed child, if God's not judging me anymore, I don't have to feel like my life is one big performance, slaving for God's approval. Uh, That word slaving is purposefully chosen. You might remember in Luke 15, the parable uh, of the two sons. Remember, that's how the story starts. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. But in reality, the story starts, a man had, do you remember? Two sons. It was better to think of it as the parable of two sons, right? Do you remember what the older brother says? The younger brother comes back who's spent all his father's inheritance and all kinds of nasty ways. He comes back groveling. The father welcomes him back in, and the older brother's like, And do you remember what the older brother says? I've been slaving for you all these years. And it probably wasn't a voice just like that. Angry, bitter, deserving, entitled. The older brother wasn't working with joy, but as a slave performing who now believes he deserves. And this younger brother, he didn't perform. And you should treat him like he didn't perform, and you should treat me like I did. Hint, hint. But God, who works by by free grace, not because of what we've done, God's gracious. Me, I'm the glad and grateful recipient of God's grace. What does that mean? It means that performing is not needed because it's already been done. The verdict's already in. Now, I, I realize that that's... I I say those words, but I realize they're hard to get a hold of. So let me keep teasing it out for you. What does that mean if we actually get this and understand it, what we're taught in this passage? I'm giving you the message first and then the passage second to show you why it's true. Okay. What this means is, is freedom. If I understand this, then I don't have to perform anymore. God's not judging me anymore. Then not only do I know if I understand this, that God's not judging me. That has some follow-on things. God's not judging me. Then I find the freedom to, well, not judge myself. I don't have to perform for myself. I begin to look at me like God does, as though the performance has already been done. But that's not all. If God isn't judging me and I've stopped judging me, then there's a chance that I can experience freedom and choose to not live under the judgmental eye of others. I don't have to perform for them either. To put it all together, if God isn't isn't judging me, I don't have to perform for him, for me, 
or for others. Now imagine how wonderful your life would be if that was the way that you thought and lived. That is the promise that's held out for us when we understand and begin to implement the implications of what it means to be under God's grace. That's where we're trying to go, towards real freedom. It's freedom because if I understand God's grace, I don't have to seek for people's approval because what I think I'll get there from people's approval, I already have. I already have it. So I don't have to go find it. I've already got it because of the grace of God. I already have it from the gracious God. Now that's all possible if we understand the implications of God being gracious to us for the sake of Christ. Today, we're just going to begin thinking down that journey. We're going to spend our time today thinking about the fact that God is no longer judging his children. You can't do something to get out of his family. How is that possible? How can you not do something that would, wouldn't get you kicked out of the family? Well, here's the way to think about it. I, I can't remember. I suppose I could have looked this up, but I didn't. I can't remember if I taught here on omniscience. So omniscience is the, the attribute of God that he knows uh, omni all um, science, knowledge. He knows everything. Okay. So there's no piece of knowledge that God is lacking. So when God brought you into the family, was there any piece of knowledge about you that he didn't have about the future ways that I would screw up? No. He didn't go in blind. He didn't go in sort of like, well, tell Matt, if I knew you were going to do that, I wouldn't have brought you in the family. This, no. He goes in with full knowledge. Purposefully, because it's what I needed and it's what you need. So he didn't bring you into the family wondering, oh, is he going to perform? No, he already knew you were. Just, I was going to screw up and you were going to screw up. He, he knew all that going in. But because your hope and mine was, the only hope we had was for him to graciously bring us into the family. That's what he does. He brings us into the family by grace, not by our performance, past or future. It's just not the way that he works. And I lost my sermon. That's not good. We now pause for technical difficulties. Please keep holding the line. We'll return in just a moment. Check. Your internet is offline. All right. Did Dorothy give you the outline of the bulletin? Nice. We got something. That's good. I have no idea what happened with Mr. iPad here. Such is life. All right. It's a good thing I preached this one last week. All right. So how do you begin to get inside of this? If God brought you and his family with full knowledge ahead of time, and that's the nature of his grace, this is the beginning of the promise that you could enjoy this, that you can enjoy actually being free of God's judgment. Well, how do you know that that's the case? That's why we're looking at Romans 8 today. And so let's start first uh, thinking about uh, you should know that God isn't against you. In fact, the inverse is true. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? 
Well, what are, they, what are these things? Well, you could say it's all the way from Romans chapter 1 from the beginning to here, but more than likely it's probably uh, from chapters 5 uh, up till now, which is a marvelous, marvelous collection of truths, right? So what? What? how should we respond to this is really what Paul's trying to lead us towards. How should we respond to this? If God is for us, now that's a very interesting phrase, right? It probably could be better and maybe even appropriately said, since God is for us, not a conditional, but, a, but an, an actuality statement, since God is for us, because he is. Uh, some years ago, we were in Coeur d'Alene uh, before we'd moved there on vacation, and a preacher preached on this, past, on this verse for a New Year's sermon. And I had never pondered before the fact um, that, that God would be for me. That like in my corner, um, as it were, cheering for me. But this is what it says, that he's for us. If God's for us, there's four who's here to pay attention to, right? Who? Expect an answer. No one. Who can be against us? And he's going to tell you what all the things could be that against you, but it's not going to happen. All right. So who can be against us? Well, it's not going to be God. How do we know that it's not God? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. If you think um, back, if you've got some knowledge of the scriptures, and even if you don't, you can go back and read this this afternoon. Um, In Genesis 22, there's an incident with Abraham and Isaac where God uh, takes long for Isaac to come along. And at some point, God tells Abraham, hey, go. Go get ready to sacrifice him. Abraham's like, are you sure? This took a while to happen. It was against the odds. God's like, it's all right. And at the end, God allows Abraham to spare his son. And you're meant, you're meant to hear that echo in this. But what we're told about our father in heaven is that he did not spare his own son. He didn't. What did he do instead? He gave him up. That phrase is also a very dense one. It has that overtone of Jesus being given over. What we'll think about at the table in a little bit here is that Jesus was given over to death. Because it's what we needed. He gave him up for us all. Although, remember, this may seem odd to teach the basics of the Bible, the basics of the scriptures, the basics of the gospel to Christians. But remember that this book of Romans was written to Christians. And Paul re-preaches the gospel to them because evidently it's what they needed. And it's evidently what we need too, because it's here for us. He gave them up for us all, for those professing faith in Christ, those trusting in Christ. So this one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously? That's a marvelous word to just put your arms around. How will we not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Not everything. You may not drove behind somewhere in the country that was driving this week, drove behind a Bentley. It's like, it's a nice ride. No, not like that, all things. You're not guaranteed a Bentley. But you are. God will graciously give you all things that you need for life and godliness.
All right, so what's the, we're trying to think through the implications of God being gracious, of us being under his grace. What is it that we're supposed to get uh, from these couple of verses? Well, it's to know that God isn't against you. See, sometimes I prayed in that way on purpose as I was thinking about how to lead this morning is that I think that we misread many times. We look at the circumstances of our life and we're like, God, God must be against me. He must be judging me because life is not going the way that I want it to. Uh, my house is about 48 degrees right now because I got home Wednesday night. And despite being on a propane subscription, you know, where, where you tell them you pay attention to it. They hadn't delivered any propane to my house in two months and we were not a. So you can read difficult circumstances. I have a pastor friend that resigned from his post last week under some duress. My son works in the staff of the church and it's gutting. It's the best church I've ever been to. It's gutting. We had friends. I told my wife on the way up here, driving up. Um, friends we just met last fall, our age, scary as anything. Wife died in three days this week, from diagnosis to death. Three days, gone. My age. Y- you can look at life and you can, and you can just, that's one week. That's one week of my life. And you can look at life and you can go, yeah, things are not going the way that I'd like them to. God must be against me. It's a misread, friends. Is life filled with hardship and difficulty and death and challenge? Absolutely. But you were told it was going to be this way if you'd been paying attention. You were told it was going to be this way. And we'll read about it later. That is not a marker. This is not one that things are bad here, so God must be against me. He's judging me. No. Those don't, do not correlate. Those do not go together. Those are not friends. You have to disambiguate them in your mind. God's not judging you. He couldn't possibly be. How do you know? Because he gave up his own son for you with full knowledge of what you were like. How is it that God can't be against you? It's because no one can charge you. Let's keep going on here. Verse 33. Second, who? Who? Expect an answer? No one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, you know, People that don't like you and you don't like yourself, Satan, right? Theoretically, there are some chargers out there, right? Um, But none who really count. Why? Because it is God who justifies. There's a very dense, super important word there at the end of verse 33, justifies. This is the idea of God declaring someone righteous. So this is why he couldn't possibly be judging you because you've already been declared righteous. How are you declared righteous? So you were declared righteous because the righteousness that Jesus had and that he lived out, he fulfilled all righteousness, we're told in the scriptures, all the way to the end, he was without sin. He did everything his father asked of him. That record of righteousness that Jesus had started with, maintained, kept, even built on, he fulfilled all righteousness. That record of Jesus' perfect life becomes your record when you trust in Jesus. And you're my lousy, very lousy record. My very lousy record. That gets put to Jesus' account. That's why he dies. He doesn't die for his sins. He dies for my sins. He dies for your sins. Not because he deserved judgment, but because you and I did. 
Who, who could charge us? Nobody that counts. It's God who justifies. So then, verse 34, who? Who is to condemn? Who could possibly pronounce a sentence of condemnation against you or me as we trust in Jesus? It's impossible because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. All right, so recognize here that Paul is telling you that, yes, it's important that Jesus died, but also uh, you'll commonly hear me say that Jesus lived, died, rose, ascended, now interceding. All of those are important in the sequence. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is incredibly important because of the fact that we live in a broken world and we're broken people. Because his resurrection, uh, we're told, is the, the first fruits, it's the foretaste, it's the little beginning of everything going back to very good and forever. That's why it's important that Jesus was raised. It also tells us that bodies are important. Taking care of people is important. It's not just the immaterial spiritual parts that are important, but, but human bodies are important. The world is important. God made it all very good and aims to put it back. It's a new heavens and new earth that we inherit. So Jesus died. He's raised. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God. Physically. Still in a body. You know that, right? He's still in a body. He will always be in a body. Forever. Because it's what we needed. What's he doing? This is precious, friends. And in verse 34, he's, he's interceding for us. This is, inestim- my note here says, inestimably wonderful. That's what my note says. This is incredible. That Jesus' love and care for you as an individual is such that he talks to his father about you. He talks to his father about you. He prays for you. He cares about you. So, um, it, so theoretically, um, you know, I think that we can sort of accuse ourselves. We can think that others or Satan are accusing us, and and that does, I guess. Um, it happens in our minds and our hearts, particularly to accuse ourselves if you're that kind of person or you listen to other people's accusations or whatever. Um, but you have to imagine the reality like this, that Jesus is standing next to the Father and going, nah. I mean, yeah, but I died for that too. Yeah, Matt screwed that up. I know it. He should have lived this way, but, but I lived in his place in that way. And in every single instance, Jesus is there interceding his righteousness, his death for your sins and mine. Who, who could, who could possibly condemn? No one can. No one can charge you, at least not successfully. No one can. Which is why you would enjoy being free of God's judgment. 
So go with me to verse 35, the fourth who here, who, and the expected answer, all of these is no one. Okay, but let me work with me through 35 to the end of the passage, and let's think about why no one can. All right, so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Expected answer, no one. But let's just go through a few details to make sure that you understand how to read your life and understand that these things are not an indication that you've been separated from the love of Christ. These are not an indication that you're not under God's grace. These are not an indication that God's judging you. They're, they're separate from that. You shouldn't read them like that. All right, so let's go through these because this is marvelous. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Expense and answer, no one. But let's consider a few things. How about tribulation? How about tribulation? How about difficulties uh, in life or worse than that? Nah. Nope. Distress? Nope. Not going to do it. How about persecution? Hmm, we're getting persecuted, which if you stay abreast of affairs around the world, um, it's it, we tend to think you can overblow it, I think, in, in our country. But there are other Western countries where persecution is beginning to be experienced by Christians. Maybe you've read in England that they've now started to arrest people who pray outside of an abortion clinic, which is stunning that you could get arrested for praying. But but you can be. You can be arrested in Canada if you simply open some passages of Scripture and you read them and you exposit them because the view that is there in the Scriptures is not one appreciated by the government. Uh, Australia, too. So um, we, we shouldn't overblow our situation, but we also shouldn't be non-cognizant of the fact that there are Christians in other Western countries that are not experiencing what we used to be able to experience, which was the freedom of religion. We don't experience a lot of persecution, but there are lots of people around the world who I wonder if they think perhaps that God's, God doesn't love them anymore or is judging them because they're persecuted. This is no. How about famine? Nope. I'm not going to do it. Nakedness? Awful. Shameful. Very difficult. Not going to separate you from the love of God. Danger. Paul, just have to go over in 2 Corinthians and read about some of his experiences to know that danger was certainly part of his lot. Nope. Sword. No, no. Sword's not going to separate you from the love of God, but it will put you with Christ very soon. So that's actually good. And those things are certainly possible. That's the message of verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And certainly some of our brothers and sisters around the world experience that every day. So should you read any of those things, and you could fit almost everything that happens that's difficult in life into those categories. And not have to work very hard at it. So does that mean that we're separate from the love of Christ? No. See, verse 30, 37, it, um, translations don't sometimes, um, it, it's factually correct that the word is no. But there's, but there's not, um, there's no feeling behind no. It's like you can do like, no, 
And it's sort of, it, it doesn't mean much. But this is like, no. Not a chance. Impossible. In fact, in all these things, now, the prepositions are important. Notice that this is in, not despite, but in, in the midst of them actually happening. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors because we're strong? No. More than conquerors through him who loved us. It's dependency through and through, friends. We never get strong. In fact, I'm becoming more and more convinced that my problem is not strength. My problem is not that I'm not strong enough. My problem is that I'm not weak enough. That's my problem. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul, who experienced a great measure of these, this listing here of things, says this, for I am sure. Um, faith is not uh, hope against hope, hope in the face of countervailing evidence. Faith is not a shot in the dark. Faith is sure assurance because of the one that we're trusting in. So Paul says, I am sure of what? And there's a, a bunch of pairings here, what uh, Bible teachers call mirrorisms. They're, they're meant to communicate uh, the ends and then everything in the middle, right? So heavens and earth, right? All right. So I'm sure that neither death nor life or anything between, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth kind of covers the waterfront. But just in case, nor anything else in all creation. All right, so here's the way to think about this. The father, who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he's not charging us. He's not taking his love away. He's not separating us from his love. He's the one who brought us into his family with full knowledge and intended to be gracious to us and delivers us grace by the work of his son. The father is not separating us from the love of Christ. In fact, he's welcoming us into it. So God is not, the creator won't separate us from the love of Christ and nothing in creation can. That's how you're supposed to read this. The creator won't and nothing in creation can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. So, what we're trying to think through this morning is the fact that you are not under the judgment of God as you trust in Christ. Let's think about that. What does it mean to trust in Christ? 
the call of the gospel is to repent and believe. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper here in just a minute, right? And it's for the Lord's Supper is for the people of God, for the family of God, for those who have who are living a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Uh, let me talk to you just a little bit about what that means, because Paul says this is for for us all, right? For those of us who are trusting in Christ. So let's think about what that means for a minute. So people who are trusting in Christ, uh, there's sort of uh, two sides to that coin, if you will. There's repentance and faith. Repentance says uh, basically this. Well, there's a lot of ways that I have tried to run my own life. There's a lot of ways that I've tried to handle life. Not all of them have been good for me or for others. They dishonor God, and I'm giving up that project. I'm done running my own life. And so I'm turning. You realize that's what sin is, right? It's you trying to handle life on your own. That's that's the very simple version. You trying to figure out how emotionally in the moment, how to handle life that's not with God. And so you do it yourself. My uh, young niece, um, she's not so young anymore. She's married, having kids of her own. But um, when she was little and my wife and I would watch her when I was in seminary, uh, her little two and a half year old um, face would look up at me. I'd say, Cassie, would you, would you like help with that? And she'd look at me, put her hands on her little hips, and she'd go, by self. Now, Cassidy was honest. Sometimes we're not as honest as, as she was. We'd sin because we're going, by self. I can get this done. I can figure it out. And we do it apart from God in our own way. And repentance says, I'm done with that. I'm done with that project. I'm not trying to live life that way anymore. Instead, I'm coming over here and I'm saying, God, I need you desperately. Um, It's not good for me to rule my own life. Jesus, I need you living for me because I've lived lousy. I need you dying for me because of all the, the wrong things that I've done that make me feel guilt and shame and fear. And I need your Holy Spirit so that I'll live different. So the Christian is the one who lives that lifestyle daily of repentance and faith. Now, why don't we feel this? The the third point here is to enjoy being free of God's judgment. And there's a lot of Christians that I meet that are not not enjoying this. They're not enjoying this at all. And um, I think that's uh, one confusion, one main confusion that I see in, in Christians as to why that is. And it's a, it's a confusion between how do we start the Christian life and how do we make progress in the Christian life? The fancy uh, theological words for that are justification and sanctification. So justification talks about how I get into the family. That is, I trust in Christ and turn from my sin and I begin that lifestyle doing that day by day. God declares me righteous and I'm in the family. Sanctification is the progress that I make in the Christian life as I'm changed more and more. And that, that progress is sometimes, um, you know, proceeds along swimmingly. And other times it's like, hmm, yeah, I'm having a hard time with this. Two steps forward, one step back. And sometimes what we do is we confuse these two. We say, well, you know, my sanctification is not going so well. So I'm wondering, is God pretty unhappy with me? Is he judging me? And we confuse these two. And it's a category confusion. 
Because God already knew the struggles you were going to have as one of his children. But he got into the business of having you in his family precisely because of those struggles. Because he knew you would need help in those struggles. You would need his love. You'd need the work of Christ. You'd need the Holy Spirit working within you. That's why you're in the family, because you needed help. So the message, if you're going to enjoy this, if you enjoy being free of God's judgment, is to know that it's true, you are free of his judgment, and to not confuse these. But to know that the very reason you're in the family is because you needed help, not just at the beginning, but all the way through. Friends, won't you join me? I want to enjoy this more. Won't you? Let's pray together. Father, it's tempting, depending on our own backgrounds and experiences, it's tempting to sense that we're being judged. Sometimes by you, sometimes by ourselves, sometimes by others. Would you convince us that we don't have to think that way any longer, that we don't have to feel that way any longer? Would you help us to truly believe that we've been received into the family by grace, not by performance? And would you help us to not to stop feeling like we have to perform for you, ourselves, or others? Because the verdict's in. Because Jesus lived and died and rose, ascended, and prays for us. Help us to sense that these things are true, Father. And this would glorify you, because you're the one who tells us that it's true. And it would certainly bless us. Help us, Holy Spirit, convince us even now as we come to the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.